Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle NBs that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. is Gretchen and I'm Lee and in this episode this is the uh second part of our two-part episode Nazi punks fuck off yeah and today we are going to be talking about Claude Cahoon the surrealist genderqueer anti-fascist Nazi fighter and my wife husband everything spouse of the week and forever (laughs) uh we're still fired up from the last episode oh man and oh man! This is this is our part two, and it's really exciting because they led a really really super cool life, and Lee has Gar- fallen in love a little bit, just a just a smidge. Right, right. I mean, I'm falling in love, and I didn't take the lead in research on this episode, <laughs> and I'm reading through and being like, oh my god, it's like yeah. they sound fucking amazing. Yeah. Sometimes we like write thirty page outlines, and it's just like me and Gretchen both going crazy on a Google Doc, and this time like we each on our own separate parts. Like, for Magnus Hirschfeld and for Claude Cahoon, wrote, like, 15 pages on their own. So, <laughs> we were originally going to this... fit these two into one episode. Can you believe that? <laughs> that that That's why this is a two-part episode instead of one. <laughs> yeah. We have a lot of feelings Seriously. about awesome people who, you know, bash Nazis, so. Right. There, there's a reason why we we recently coined the phrase Gavenclaw, because yeah. <laughs> we're raving, we're big gay nerd Ravenclaws and we can't stop writing like 15 page articles on people even though neither one of us are in grad school anymore yeah like, <laughs> or at all or can at I just all. retroactively yep. like get myself a degree from doing this <laughs> I feel like we kind of deserve to have one we're doing all of the work for it we probably really more are. work than lots of grad students do <laughs> yeah. oh man um so yeah so continuing the discussion from last uh last episode we're going to be you know dealing with some some heavy topics like nazism and fascism there are mentions of suicide in this episode as well so as always we'll give you a marker on our uh show notes to let you know when that discussion is happening and we also want to let you know that many sources that talk about this person do tend to use she, her pronouns. There's some question from some people about, you know, whether or not certain identification as, like, genderqueer in between gender is part of, you know, part of the art and the surrealism and whether or not it's actually part of identity. We're, you know, more inclined to believe that it's part of identity because guess what? Gender is performative anyway. And you'll learn later as we talk about Claude Cahoon that they were also of that mind. So we are going to be using they, them pronouns when we are speaking from our own mouths about Claude Cahoon, but um, there will be sources that use she and her pronouns. So just be aware we are not misgendering this person or attempting to misgender this person. We are quoting from sources. Right. And we, the two of us, the decision we made to use they, them pronouns pronouns comes from our desire really to try and be as respectful as possible from what we can determine of their own self-perception mm-hmm. and figure it's better to err on the side of being more respectful than than not. 
Yes. At least we think that. Like, yeah. Like the same with when we talked about Jemima Wilkinson. It was just one of those, you know, for people who seem to have a perception of themselves outside of the gender binary, we'd rather be more respectful mm-hmm. and use they, them. Yeah. So. So so with that, we've got a little bit of, you know, we're not going to focus a lot on um, historical societal context in this episode because a lot of it really intersects with what we were talking about last episode. But we do have some specific things that I think give some important context to the life of Cloud Cahoon. Um, so Gretchen, do you want to start off just mentioning about what was sure. going on at the time that they were born? Right, yeah. So the Dreyfus Affair was a political scandal from 1894 to 1906. And Cahoon was born right around the time of the Dreyfus Affair. And the Dreyfus Affair was a situation where a Jewish artillery officer was framed by the French government and accused of giving military secrets to the Germans. Mm -hmm. Maurice Schwab, Cahoon's father, had been a colleague, actually, of Dreyfus, the artillery officer who was framed at military school. So there was a connection there. In 1906, the Dreyfus... Dreyfus conviction was annulled by the Supreme Court of Appeals, which sparked a lot of demonstrations in France, some specifically against Cahoon's father's newspaper. So, um, again, just context of, like, anti-Semitism relationship with, like, authority and government and, like, a close personal connection to these kind of political situations that are going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Fast forwarding to later on in in Claude Cahoon's life, as we'll go into, so they later on in life moved to Paris and... We wanted to talk a little bit about what was going on in the 1920s in Paris, in France in general, what was going on. So this was the jazz age. Paris was like, the, you know, this was going on, the the age of like cafe culture, the jazz age. It was the hub of like experimental dance and theater. Josephine Baker was in vogue. And there was a big kind of backlash after the First World War of uh, a lot of kind of cultural contexts around gender dynamics changing in France. There were, like, able-bodied men who were away at war during the First World War. And so, much like in the United States, women were able to move into different positions that they had been previously barred from. And so you had this, much like the flapper movement in the United States, you had this emergence of this, like, new modern woman figure. In French, it was La Garçon, uh, a, a feminized, with, with two ends, a feminized spelling of, like, the French word for boy. And masculinity, ideas around masculinity were changing as well. You had many, many men uh, who were wounded from war, like, wandering the streets and changing this idea of this like virile strong able-bodied man wandering around and you know asserting dominance things were like changing kind of all around right right and you have things like shell shock Mm -hmm. so you know a lot of the soldiers are coming back from world war one with you know what we would now know as ptsd and their ability to kind of participate in those like traditionally masculine like roles was really like hindered by their experience of war and their trauma and kind of the after effects of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the art scenes in Paris in the interwar period included um, a lot of movements away from kind of traditional art. Um, you had things like Dadaism, surrealism, uh, combined with like a lot of political action and movements towards socialism and communism in certain artist circles, which we'll get into a little bit. And something that I thought was really interesting and 
upsetting uh, was that there were a lot of post-war anxieties that affected the attitude towards homosexuality specifically as well. Um, homosexuality was actually thought of as a threat to the national body in France. And I have a quote here from a, a book that we're going to be, you know, referencing a lot, which is by Jennifer Shaw on Claude Cahoon. And it says, the problem, quote unquote, problem of homosexuality was linked in the cultural imagination to the trauma of the war. And homosexual men, together with La Gosson, were thought to pose a particular threat to the culture order. So backlash and reaction to these supposed like homosexual threats in the reconstruction of France after the war was uh, they started this movement towards like repel la order or a return to order. Sorry for butchering French. Um, <laughs> expressed in like visual and literary arts through like there were backlash and trying to like put an emphasis on traditional and like classic art and yet conveniently ignoring the super homoerotic nature of the classics. So that's right. fun. Right. I mean, it's a very similar thing that you see after World War II in America with the 50s. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a very, very similar kind of like the war was so traumatic. And as a response, like gender, like people tend to like double down or at least what we've seen in recent history is that societies tend to like double down on like traditional, what is traditional. And often that includes like a very like rigid binary view of like gender, very rigid, like roles for like sexual orientation and attraction so something similar was happening in france in mm -hmm. after world war one that we see in the 50s in the united states Woo. yay <laughs> so yeah so that's the context that we're going to be giving there's got there's a lot of context that we'll be giving as we go through cloud cahoon's life um so it's bio time and that's going to be the majority of this episode folks they lived a really interesting and long life so well, I mean, not super long, but like super interesting. So strap in, folks. It's going to be a big one. We're going to tell you about the life of Cloud Cahoon. Yes. Um, so yeah. yeah, go for it. Cloud Cahoon was born October 25th, 1894 as Lucie-Renée Mathilde Schwab in Nantes, France. Father was Maurice Schwab, a Jewish journalist. Mother Marie-Antoinette, oh, Courbebase, I think. Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> suffered from a personality disorder and struggled with mental illness all her life, which deeply affected Cahoon. And from the outside, it can really be said that Cahoon lived a, you know, quote unquote, privileged childhood. They came from a prominent and intellectual family, but there were actually many difficulties present in their childhood that made Cahoon feel like their family was not normal and that they couldn't live up to the expectations placed on them by their family or their culture. Mm -hmm. uh, most prominently was their struggle with their mother's frequent stays in mental hospitals and the anti-Semitic backlash aimed at their father during the height of the Dreyfus affair. In a letter to a family friend, quote, an Aryan mother, obese, struck by mental illness, according to the psychiatrist, institutionalized, a Jewish father at the time of the Dreyfus affair, an idealist education, even the thought of normal relationships and activities frightened my family, who, in order to protect me from a world that seemed to me a priori hostile and from a hereditary heredity that they judged to be a priori fatal, my father could offer me nothing better on my seventh birthday than this. I am very sorry for having brought you into this world. With real tears in his eyes, I never complained. I expressed myself as little as possible. One couldn't have been more docile, more studious. And those are the words of Claude Cahoon themselves. And that mm -hmm. just like... Like ugh. what a childhood, right? <laughs> right? When ugh. you're seven years old, your your father says, like, I'm sorry you were born? Yeah. Like... Well, but to be ugh. born into a world that we're, like, you're fraught with, you know... One of the things about, like, their mother 
and and their personality disorders that often came out in in ways in which their mother would, you know, it, in one moment give them all of the attention in the world and in the other give completely cold shoulder and would do things like mm. um push push their their nose up and try to try to give them like a like a more Aryan nose and and you know the the idea oh. that like they couldn't live up to these certain ideals because of their Semitic heritage and because of a whole bunch of different things. Um, so it was it was really kind of fraught uh, in the beginning there. Right. Um, right. And so Cahoon's mother was permanently institutionalized, and at this time, their father was working long hours uh, at his newspaper and couldn't adequately care for Cahoon. And so they were um, actually sent to live with their maternal grandmother, Mathilde, uh, from 1897 to 1905, who, in Cahoon's own words, words, was both terrifying and loving. And there is where they, like, developed this deep, deep love for the classics. The grandmother was blind, and so they made Cahoon read to her, read to her and... Writing to a friend, Cahoon describes how their grandmother spoke, quote, For my benefit, perhaps of the antique, of Palestine, of the Bible, of Greek mythology, of Greece, of Sparta, of Homer, of Socrates. These subjects, especially the last, held me under their spell, end quote. So you get this hmm. really, really intense love of the classics. And as you'll see, like specifically some certain, certain elements of the classics that is deeply ingrained in them from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Right. And they were they were frequently bullied at school due to ostracization regarding their studiousness. So, you know, people like to pick on the nerd. Mm -hmm. um, but also, they again, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic sentiments following the annulment of the Dreyfus conviction. Cahoon said, one day tied with jump rope to a tree in the schoolyard, I was stoned with gravel. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. kids are so shitty Kids sometimes. are terrible. Ugh. Kids are awful. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, you know that that was the hard part is you know that the kids are acting on what they see the society around them doing mm -hmm. like they wouldn't have felt okay to do that if like the environment wasn't conducive to like that being in some sense like acceptable yeah and that's just of course you're gonna grow up believing like you're an outsider and you don't really fit anywhere yeah, yeah. um so because of the you know the bullying at school, Cahoon's father pulled them from school in France and sent them to England to go to the Parsons Mead School in Surrey. And this was for like a like a year or so until they returned to school in Nantes uh, in 1908. And going to England kind of rejuvenated Cahoon. It allowed them to, you know, be free from, from all these pressures for a while. And so upon returning to France, they were more encouraged by their father to study all the things that interested them. And it took kind of the, this like anti-Semitic pressure off of them for a little while and they kind of blossomed. Mm, and right. so with that, they dove into literature and poetry. They fell in love with specifically symbolist work, especially influenced by the work of their uh, poet, who or their or their uncle, who was a symbolist poet, Marcel Schwab, and his compatriots. And so, basically, due to their family upbringing, Cahoon was able to reserve a classical education that was usually reserved for boys. And so, this from from the start mm. affected their outlook toward the world and like their relationship with femininity and cultural expectations of young girls and gender and mm. you'll see that come out like in every single aspect of their work right right i really really love the way cahoon describes it themselves um that their education quote taught me at a young age to resist all religious conformity and even pagan or civic conformity describing the process of growing up as an effort to win her her freedom from such expectations like i just love that mm -hmm. growing up and receiving all of these influences taught them like you really see how this like shaped the person that they became later in life which mm -hmm. is just so cool yes 
And the other thing that shaped them immensely for later in their <laughs> life is that gay shit. Yes. Um, so, oh my god, this love, okay, so this- It's the, it, this is the cutest of meat cutes. This is the best, like, their entire lives, like, this is the best love story I've ever read. <laughs> so, at age 14, Claude meets Suzanne Malherbe, uh, who later uses the pseudonym Marcel Moore, who was, quote, Shaw describes as the woman who would become their best friend, lover, life partner, and artistic collaborator. 14. 14, 14 years old. Like, huh. I normally don't really go for the, like, we were high school sweethearts and then we got married. Mm-hmm. Like, especially in a straight context, I tend to think, like, that's weird. Why yeah. would, how would you know you're, who you're going to spend your life with at 14? But, like, this is, like, yeah. this is, like, beautiful well, love story for the and, ages. And they had even, like, not super formally met before this. Like, they had, like, met as, like, tiny baby children because the fam- their families oh were, were close, but they didn't know each other. And so they, like, officially, like, met in 1909 because Moore and Cahoon's brothers were school friends, which led to their, their meeting and becoming friends. And Cahoon described meeting Moore as a lightning strike. Like, fuck! That's so romantic! This is, like, soulmates AU, except it's not an AU. AU it's, it's just like, happened. real life. It's just yeah. real life. <laughs> so... What I thought was, like, really fascinating about this is that Cahoon's father, Maurice, starts noticing the attraction between them, like, right away, like, in 1910. But amazingly, he doesn't, he doesn't push Cahoon into associations with boys because he feared that they would, that Cahoon would inherit their mother's mental illness and didn't want Cahoon to, like, marry and then pass on, like, a debilitating illness to children, which, you know, like, super stigmatizing in terms of mental illness, but also, like pretty progressive like well you know i'm not gonna push this kid into like going to try to find a boy so this it, be- it be- better gay than than just, like mentally ill children right i guess yeah but- i don't know a lot of people who like yeah it's like weird but i also don't know a lot of people who would be like well yeah good thing good thing they're gay i guess <laughs> yeah <laughs> but so like this actually in a weird way gave Cahoon freedom from the pressures to uh, from the pressures to conform to heteronormative society. Mm. They said to be a priori exempt from marriage relieved me of a distant but oppressive threat, true terror, and appeared to me immediately as the greatest privilege. So hey, you know that works pretty well, right? Yeah. Right. Though, like, even though he didn't push Cahoon into marriage, which is awesome. Good job. Good dad. Um, he did initially discourage their attraction and disapproved of Cahoon's desire to become a writer, which led Cahoon to pursue the literary path in secret and keep their attractions to war in secret because, you know, when you tell teenagers not to do something, their reaction is typically like, well, I guess I just won't I'm, tell you. I'm, I'm going to do it and you won't know about it. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But like because they had to keep it all in secret, they began taking ether, not eating, suffering ill health. And they were basically on the brink of suicide, which prompted Cahoon's father to seek medical advice from Moore's father, which led to him sanctioning their relationship for the health of his child, as well as giving Cahoon a position writing a column for his newspaper. Quote, Maurice was not a fool. It was he who proposed, on the advice of Dr. Malherbe, to entrust his daughter to Suzanne. Like, Cahoon's love for Moore literally saved their life. They were like, I'm, I love this person so much. I might die. And their dad was like, okay, okay. then, then have, then 
okay, fine. And go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Go for it. And oh, that, man. like, that's, this is not, like, the only time that this happens in their life, too. That, like, their love for one another essentially saved their life, which was really cool. <sighs> so, fun, fun times. They actually, so they... Because even though like Cahoon's father and Moore's father were were sanctioning their relationship, they still you know carried out their relationship somewhat discreetly because of societal expectations. But in a wild and fun turn of events, eventually when when Moore's father passed away in 1915, and Cahoon's father, who had divorced their mother, actually Cahoon's father married Moore's mother in 1917, and which now made Cahoon and Moore uh, stepsisters, which actually allowed them to carry out the relationship and live together oh and show affection publicly under the guise of sisterhood. So like all these weird, like terrible sisters. misfortunes turned into like, oh, well, this is like a grace. <laughs> yeah. We're like, we're like sisters. We're, we're I love like that they, they used the societal expectations just to be like, okay, if people, like, if it's okay for sisters to be affectionate, we'll, we'll just go with that. We'll let them think that. It, That's it reminds fine. It reminds me of that part in Rent where it's like, sisters, oh we're close. Yes. We're it's just great. roommates, guys. Roommates. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so Cahoon says, the strange coincidence that we were reunited through our family ties seemed to make everything work better. So, pretty How cool. is this real? I don't know how, like, an insane <laughs> biopic has not made been made of this person's life yet and like someone needs we're to not make even, it we're not even anywhere near anything we else. haven't even gotten to their art and, and <laughs> fucking with the nazis yet and we're already like losing our shit yeah. over it oh <laughs> uh, god this i mean like it's pretty hard to top and bonnie and mary reed but like i think i think claude cahoon may be my new favorite um yeah yeah this is this is tough all right so moving along so going into a little bit into their like early literary work. In the years between 1913 and 1921, Cahoon began developing their identity as an artist and a writer, and found themselves primarily influenced by the work of late 19th and early 20th century homosexual male writers like Oscar Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas and André Gide. All people who were, like, connected to their uncle Marcel. Mm. And so, like, there was this rejection of traditional female roles and not seeing any image of womanhood that suited Cahoon, and so they were very interested in these writers' works that reference same-sex love and they even um later when they moved to paris with moore they even had like a photo of wilde and douglas hanging in their parisian apartment mm. which is fantastic mm. um mm. they began writing fashion columns for the family newspaper but personally rejected feminine dress and clothing and shaved their head and started taking self-portraits um which the self-portraits are a big 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 thing in 1919 they began officially using the name Claude Cahoon, and uh, Suzanne started signing portraits as Marcel Moore. And I thought this was interesting. Before settling on Claude Cahoon, they had used Daniel Douglas as a pseudonym from Lord I Alfred Douglas and Claude Corley uh, from Curlew, which is a, a bird with a hooked beak. And it was specifically mm -hmm. like referring to their, quote, hooked Jewish-looking nose they had inherited from their father. So there was a lot of like moving between different things and continually... So like, for a while, they basically went by like Claude Mc. Jew for a yeah, while. Basically. <laughs> Yeah. So this is this is the period where they kind of have their first foray into symbolist literary works. And we're not going to go super into detail uh, about their works in kind of each period of their life until we get to the like, what do we think they're gay section? Because, oh boy, there's some doozies. Um, yeah. But uh, so the first unpublished manuscript that they signed as Claude Cahoon 
is something called Uranian Games that they, they wrote in 1913, which leads us to our word of the week this week, which is Uranian. Uranian. Which actually is a nice thing that in a lovely way kind of connects back to Hirschfeld, as we were talking yes. about the last episode. Gretchen, do you want to do you want to lead sure. in? Sure. Uranian. Woo. So Uranian is a 19th century term for a person of the quote unquote third sex, which again, we talked about with Hirschfeld last time. So someone with a female psyche in a male body, uh, someone who is sexually attracted. Uh, so typically like a, a male who was sexually attracted to men originally, which then evolved to refer to homosexuals in general. It was adopted by homosexual Victorian poets like Walter Pater, John Addington Simmons, Lord Alfred Douglas, Oscar Wilde. Um, emphasis was based on classical training, description of the Iranian poetry from Plato. According to Shah, was characterized by poetic worship of beautiful young men in the idealized context of ancient Greece. Cahoon may have also been aware of the more general ways that the term Uranian would resonate culturally. The terms Uranism and earnings were part of a vocabulary of homosexuality in the interwar years that also included descriptions pederasty, which again we mentioned last time, inversion, and the term the third sex. Well, the word earning, which is spelled U-R-N-I-N-G, was coined by Carl Heinrich Ulrichs, which we talked about last time, in 1864 to 1865 in a series of five booklets, which are collected under the title Forschungen über das Rätsel der Mannmannlichen Liebe, which is research into the riddle of male, male love. It's fun to watch Gretchen do German. <laughs> I like German. I studied German in graduate school. Also, in, in my former life when I was a, a classically trained soprano, um, way back when, high school, early college, um, my favorite songs to sing were German art songs. Ooh, so um, that's I don't know why. Like, everyone I knew loved singing French and, and Italian and Latin, and I loved German. I just liked, I don't know, maybe I just like guttural noises. Um <laughs> That's gay. Anyway, it is really gay. Um, <laughs> anyway, back to earning. <laughs> um, earning and Uranian were used in France between the wars in the in the time period between the First and Second World War, together with a variety of other phrases to describe many types of homosexuality among both men and women. Ulrichs derived the term Uranian from the Greek goddess Aphrodite Urania, who was created out of the god Uranos, his testicles. Um, therefore, it represents the homosexual gender, whereas Dionian, or what Ulrichs called Dionian, derived from Aphrodite Dionia, which represented the heterosexual gender. So he used two different like names for Aphrodite to refer to homosexual and heterosexual love. Yeah, and this terminology was like developed and used before even the first public use of the term homosexual, uh, homosexual yeah, right. in 1869. Right. right, so he's already like coming up with like this series of terms to describe it yeah and there's there's yep. like a whole you know if you want to go more into Ulrichs we may do an episode in the future about him he had this whole like 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 a whole thing of subtypes of uh, a whole bunch of different types of sexual attraction and third genders and sexual gender variants and you know that had to do with like your orientation and your sexual behavior and gender characteristics and all of that which is all very fun and you can go look on you know like if you want to check out the wikipedia page on urania and it'll tell you all of those kind of things or you can wait for a future episode right which is interesting because a lot of what we see here like is stuff that people are still talking about now. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, over 100 years ago, there were people who were already trying to come up with ways to describe the the differences and intersections between, like, 
who you are attracted to, whether or not you are, you know, active or passive in terms of your sexual preferences, and then like your gender presentation. Like people are talking about this over a hundred years ago. And so I read stuff like this. And so I think it's really funny when people are like, all these new kids in their <laughs> in in their labels, and why does it matter? And what, I don't understand. who needs labels? Derp, derp. And I'm like, Okay, but, like, people have been talking about this for 100 years, so fuck off. (laughs) Like, it's fine. Language changes. Everything changes. Get over it. We'll probably have new ways of discovering and discussing these things in 10 years anyway. So, like, just go with the flow. Hint, none of this is new. None of this is new. None of this is new. It's been around forever. (laughs) Yeah, so Uranian, super fun. Utilize it in your own works. And we'll talk a little bit more specifically about Uranian games a little bit later. Um, Can I put that that down on the census as my, like, ethnicity? Is Uranian? I'm Uranian. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. That's, that's, That's my new, that's my new, like categorization for myself I'm because <laughs> it i mean it sounds like it's a country yeah it really does it really super duper does um oh, anyway I'm... back to cahoon yes back to cahoon um so so yeah other literary works that they published at this time their first like officially published manuscript was views and visions from ni- in 1919 and then they had one called idea mistress in 1921 again we'll go more into these a little bit later But do you want to start talking about their move to Paris? Ooh, yes. Surrealism. Exciting things. So they moved to Paris in 1920 with Moore, where they lived in an apartment together for, I mean, almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. Cahoon's work expands from emulating homosexual Victorian writers to broader cultural issues and now had something to say to a more general audience about the way gender, sexuality, and identity play themselves out in the culture at large. Paris, as you might recall from our earlier discussion, Paris was the epicenter of the art world. It was a hub for literature, experimental art, theater, cinema, dance. It was the perfect place to start expanding an avant-garde career and exploring politically focused experimental art. Cahoon and Moore found themselves in the company of many elite artists and socialites in Paris, and their apartment became a salon for these guests. They became friends with and connected with many... um, Women artists and writers, many of whom were lesbians like Sylvia Beach, Gertrude Stein, Adrienne Monnier. Not only were they friends with artists, but they also other intellectual elites, psychologists, sexologists, philosophers. Like they the were kind just, of right, right yeah. in the middle of like the the big. You know, everyone talks about Paris in the twenties and thirties. Um, they were right in the middle of all of that. Mm-hmm. Cahoon also started performing in a Paris theater, and their literary career began to take off, and they published more than 10 essays in both avant-garde and mainstream journals, all with the themes around nonconformity, refusing um, the law. Like, you know, continuing yeah. to explore things like gender and sexuality. Um, right. A whole bunch of stuff. Right. Yeah. Their main literary works at this time, which, again, we'll get into more detail later, was uh, Heroines from 1925, which is a series of essays rewriting tales of classic emblematic women in literature and history and you know gender role fuckery we've got sappho in there our favorite mm-hmm. uh patron patron saint though i kind of want to, to now call sappho our idea mistress because yes. i i love that yeah phrase oh so. god just wait until you hear some quotes from idea mistress it's fantastic <laughs> um, then you have uh bedroom carnival um mm-hmm. 1926 which dude kahoot had like 
such fucking amazing names for oh, their yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, they all sound better in French, too, which is great. Oh, I mean, <laughs> what doesn't sound better in French? <laughs> um, Bedroom Carnival is a surrealist dream narrative essay focusing on identity and its relationship to role-playing, masquerade. Again, we've got themes of performative gender and identity. Um, and Bedroom Carnival is a pretty, like, seminal work that mm-hmm. we will talk to a lot, talk about a lot more later. Yeah, yeah. Um, at this point, so, like, the 1920s really marked the beginning of Cahoon and Moore as a collaborative artistic relationship. And here's where, you know, if anybody has ever really heard the name Claude Cahoon, most likely they've they've heard of or seen or heard reference to these series of self-portraits that are some of their most famous work. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge, it's a huge repertoire of them. And so uh, sometimes, you know, a lot of them were taken by Marcel Moore and featuring Claude Cahoon, and they're shown in many of them in various guises, such as like an aviator, a dandy, a doll, bodybuilder, vamp and vampire, angel, Japanese puppet... These, these photos explore gender roles, identity, sexuality, and the performative nature of all of the above, which is fucking mind-blowing because it was more than half a century before Judith Butler was writing about gender as performance. Um, and so Shaw says in her book, There's much evidence, both visual and textual, that in the many portraits taken of Cahoon in the 1920s, Cahoon and Moore were interested in both questioning identities and the idea of a natural self. So, Mm. like, many of the portraits feature them looking directly at the viewer with their head shaved, often, like, revealing only their head and shoulders and eliminating the body from view, blurring of, like, different gender indicators and behaviors which, like, completely undermines this patriarchal gaze. Um, Right. Yeah. One one image series that I love and that we'll see if we can put on the website is like these these three images. So like the first like the first image has Cahoon dressed up like a marionette doll um, with like tons of white makeup, hearts on their cheeks, covered in like this heavy dress. They have this like head covering and they have this like impassive look and and it's all this exaggeration of femininity all around. And then the next image has them like looking straight at the camera with this intense stare, this face almost like resembling a Commedia dell'arte mask um and their hands are like clasped together in front of their hips thrust toward the camera with a masculine stance and it seems like they're they're topless it's really like it's really blown out so it's really hard to tell but like it's like this white canvas of their chest with these like dark nipples protruding and it's like it's this very like kind of masculine like daring you to like place me in this box um and then this like third image is they're just sitting here with like that makeup on again with the hearts on their cheeks and they're like dressed up like a comedic bodybuilder and they're mixing all of these different masculine and feminine elements and they're wearing this like light colored shirt with like nipples painted on which like parodies this look of a bare-chested bodybuilder and the text on the chest of the shirt says i am in training don't kiss me which is then like contradicted by their lips which are like in like a kissy pouty <laughs> form and like the hearts on it's it's insane um there's like we're gonna put it on there and there's like all these other um like images in this series with masks as a common theme, like continuing to expand the work that they were doing in Bedroom Carnival. So they have like all of this stuff all coming together in photo works and literary works. It's, uh, I'm a little bit in love. (laughs) 
it's pretty awesome to look at these images and like, and it's surrealist. So you're kind of looking at them going like, I, I kind of know what you mean, mm-hmm. but also I kind of don't. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever it is, is, is really interesting. And I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Which is just like what surrealism is. Mm-hmm. I'm very confused, but I like it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, they also had a photo and literary montage called Disavowals that they did in 1930, which we'll get more into. And that's actually the space where um, you, you see, like, really concretely, the fir- like, the time where Cahoon specifically addresses the way that they think of their gender. Um, right. It's, right. It's gay and trans and very blasphemous. And I love it. Um, right. Right. So up to this point, like their their art had primarily been very like gender focused on like gender and and femininity and and ideas of selfhood. By the 1930s, they shift towards a much more explicitly political form of art shaped by surrealism, war, fascism. So the rise of fascism and anti-Semitism in Europe and the social unrest led many intellectuals to feel that a political stand was urgently needed. So Cahoon adopted an attitude toward politics as seen through their own personal perspective. And as, I mean, as we saw with even Hirschfeld, the personal and political were always intertwined with Cahoon. And they believed very firmly in individual moral freedom, which is, again, something that they would have inherited from, like, the Romantic movements. And so they're, like, as with Hirschfeld, like, their their personal work, so their art, was always intertwined with this, like, social and desire for, like, social and political reform. Mm-hmm. In 1932, they joined the Association of Revolutionary Writers and Artists. I guess how would how would we say this? AIR? Uh, just A E I A E A R. It's you know it's a- the it's the acronym yeah. for the French, but you know I didn't want us to have to yeah. say the very very long French name. Um. <laughs> right, of course it's long and probably has a bunch of extra vowels. Yes. Um, where they met they met prominent surrealist activists Andre Breton and Rene Ravel. And participated in a number of surrealist exhibitions and wrote revolutionary manifestos. Um, so at this time, there were close ties between surrealist and anti-fascist French Communist Party. Um, Cahoon's involvement with these groups was integral to the development of a surrealist revolutionary culture. And they published a manifesto um, against the seizure of power in Germany by the Nazis. According to Shah, the AEAR raised the most vehement protest against the fascist provocations in Germany, the burning of the Reichstag, organized by the brown shirts and the terror that presided over the elections of the 5th of March. That's actually the um the text from one of the manifestos, right. which is fantastic. Right. It also um they also called out like fascism in the cultural realm against artists and what I thought is really fascinating about this is that like the AEAR and and Claude Cahoon also like was vehemently against imperialism at home like declaring french imperialism Mm. the enemy so like they had another tract that was titled against fascism but also against french imperialism (laughs) and it denounced quote all capitalist exploiters french imperialism and german fascism um so like just just revolutionary wonderfulness like yeah those nazis are bad but like also we're fucked up (laughs) and capitalism sucks Like Wait, I, yes, I want, I yes. want, I want Claude Cocoon to be here now. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, right. They would have some things to say. Yes, yes, some things to say. Yeah. Um, they made several surrealist objects and sculptures in this period, which, um, you know, if you if you check out this book, which we'll link in the, you know, in in our descriptions and everything, um, has like all of 
these works. It's really wonderful, but there's some crazy, crazy, like, surrealist objects uh, that they that they put together in this time, like sculptures and wild, wild stuff. Yeah. Yeah. As surrealists have. Very, like, Dolly reminiscent in some ways. Mm, um, right. Speaking of surrealists, they... They developed a growing satisfaction with with the Paris Surrealist groups and the political tension. So they decided to leave Paris and move to the island of Jersey. Um, And even later on in the 1930s, they broke off from the AEAR to go to other Surrealist groups um, as the political tensions in France were growing. And Cahoon experienced differing opinions on tactics, practices, ideas about various political and surrealist groups in Paris. Um, It's all very complicated, but basically, like, there were some groups that were, like, moving closer towards, like, a Stalinist perspective, and they were, and they were like, no, 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 we're gonna go over here, we're gonna, like, start my own other group, and then, you know, think, like, the questions between, like, Stalinism, Trotsky, you know, like, Trotskyist ideas, you know, Leninist ideas, like, communism is very complicated, guys. So there were differing <laughs> opinions, and they kind of moved all around when things weren't working in different places. Right, right, <laughs> uh, right. And there was this growing distaste for heter- the heteronormative rules and social conventions, which were enforced in the Paris surrealist groups themselves, um, as well as the rising anti-Semitism in Paris, because Nazis... Um, well, not just Nazis also, you know, as Hirschfeld said, it was just in the air Mm -hmm. and the increasing threat of the Nazis combined with Cahoon's like fragile health. That was one of the other reasons they decided to move to Jersey. Mm -hmm. Um, and the last manifesto in Paris that they signed ended with the line, quote, there will be no freedom until everyone is free. Like we, that we hear that all the time everywhere. Right. Like, right. This came from them. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. So in March 1937, Cahoon and Moore move to the island of Jersey and begin the period of life where they are both super badass Nazi fighters. Um, so following like their general malaise at the situation in Paris, they left and moved to Jersey where Cahoon had actually like vacationed as a child. Um, mm. So it was a very familiar place and it wasn't like too far away. Um, and they purchased this like large property this this farmhouse that they named uh la roquese and removed they they essentially like in the beginning of this period they removed themselves from the public eye they they went back to presenting themselves as sisters and going by their birth names and like for their first few years on jersey they led kind of like a relaxed and quiet life they were they were actually known in the neighborhood as the sisters and gained a reputation Mm. for like this just kind of reminds me of like um like gray gardens like the weird eccentric sisters living in their big manor house with like they gained this reputation for like sunbathing in their garden and like the local cemetery and like walking their cat on a leash oh my gosh it's the gayest thing ever it's so fantastic um and they basically like what they were trying to do is they were trying to like eke out this sort of normal existence before these like storm clouds of war came in right Mm. like Cahoon recalled in their memoir on the occupation of France that basically like I think from 1937 to 1940 I sensed the coming of war without wanting to believe it so they're trying to Mm. lead this idyllic life while like knowing that it's clouded by this incoming you know terror so yeah right right yeah and in 1940 the British government demilitarized Jersey and evacuated many of the inhabitants to England, but Cahoon and Moore stayed, uh, believing that there was more potential for anti-Nazi resistance efforts if they were there. Because they're amazing. Like, I love that that's the reason for staying. They're like, well, someone's got to fight the Nazis. Yeah. Um, 
And um, in July of that year, the Nazis began aerial bombardment and were telling the inhabitants to surrender. So, so this is the beginning of, of some really amazing oh, stuff so in their life. So Cahoon and Moore started resistance against the Nazi order from moment one of the occupation. Like Moore refused to register as being fluid in German and Cahoon didn't register as a Jew. Um, and all this time they're like listening to like radio broadcasts and like hearing what's going on around them. So they decide to start this like misinformation and counter propaganda campaign. Oh like, God. Lee, do you want to tell us more about that? Yes. I mean, like, like one of the things, like one article said their, their actions would have been hysterical if not for the immense like physical danger to them. So they, mm. they start this campaign of creating tracts and flyers designed to spread misinformation and specifically aiming at like morale distress. Destruction. They were trying to convince, like, di- you know, they like they they knew they they couldn't get to like the most diehard ho- hardcore Nazis, but they figured that not every German soldier was like a fucking anti-Semite Nazi. So like they were trying to appeal to these disillusioned German soldiers and trying to get them to defect from the army, and they did this by like putting all this information out there, making it seem like all this info was coming from within their own ranks. So they they wrote fake letters pretending to be disgruntled soldiers and signing them from this personality they called Der Soldat on Namen, the soldier with no name. Cahoon used several different like typewriters and typing and writing styles and different papers and different paperweights and like all this stuff to just completely like erase any trace to them. Um, okay, like this totally rivals like the the dr- the drama pirates. Like, oh, this yeah. is so extra. This is like, amazing. So extra. So they like they didn't just stop there. They stole propaganda posters and cut them up into resistance flyers, and then they would stuff them inside cigarette boxes <laughs> and leave them around town for soldiers to like pick up and be like, "Ooh, cool! I found some cigarettes." Yeah, and then they would like read all of these. They they oh would like God. dress in disguise, right? And like, oh who's gosh. gonna suspect? I mean, these these people are like in their like fifties by this point, and like Cahoon is like super frail with ill health like all of the effects of ether in their youth and you know a whole bunch of different things right like these <laughs> like who's gonna suspect little old two little old ladies wandering around town putting resistance tracks on tables and on staff cars on poli- like on police cars and like barbed wire fences they even slipped resistance poems into the pockets of soldiers holy shit <laughs> this is like bold as fuck like like oh like a gosh. bunch of Nazis are gonna be like, oh yeah, these like weird quirky old ladies. Okay, um, it's when- got to be the it's got to be the sisters who walk their cat on a leash. Yeah, They're probably the ones doing it. Oh, <laughs> God, it's so good. Um, so like so when when radios were banned by the Nazis, they they were like, all right, fine, have ours. But they like fucking broke the radios that they gave them so that the Nazis couldn't use them. And then they oh secretly bought a bunch more of them and like translated the information and spread it to others on the island. Um, <laughs> and like they just they did not give a fuck. Um, like they just continued everywhere. Um, until, right. like, their their house was actually, rec- so La Roquesse was requisitioned by Nazis, and they were forced to hold sol- house soldiers and horses in their barns in their garage, and there was even, there was even at one point, like, one Nazi was staying in their house, 
um, in a couple of different rooms. And they were like, all right, how the fuck do we get rid of this guy? And like, we cannot let him into our library or into our bedrooms or anywhere where we have all of this really, really incriminating information about all of these, you know, <laughs> these misinformation tracts that we're distributing everywhere. And so basically they like, whenever he would ask for extra blankets, they'd be like, oh, we don't have any, I'm sorry. And whenever like he asked for them to turn the heat on, they're like, I don't know, it doesn't work and blah, 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 blah. But like, you can go and get some coal, you know, but like our radiator doesn't work. And so oh my they did their best to like make him as uncomfortable as possible. And he, so he left, he like left oh to go like shack up in somebody else's house, which was more comfy. Oh my god! Like, ser- like seriously, like someone needs to make a movie or like right? a mini series because Ugh. this is like it's insane. This is the kind of like fucking with Nazi shit that I love watching. It's amazing. oh my god, yeah, so um, good. So like, it didn't just it didn't just stop there. Um, at one point, um, like right outside of like the La Roque's property, um, Nazis were like basically having slave laborers dig a trench in order to construct a wall, and they started like, smuggling food to the North African, Russian, and Spanish slave laborers who were being forced to construct this wall. Like, they would smuggle food to them, they would visit them, they would talk to them, all of which was forbidden, in addition to, like, taking photos all over the place, which was banned Mm. by the Nazis. One of my favorite quotes is, uh, so, like, in, um... In in the in the late forties, like the or in the in the early forties, uh, the Nazis started to issue deportations to Germany for the island's inhabitants, and like many of the British on the island were protesting, but like Cahoon always thought that the people on Jersey should be doing more to resist the Nazis, right? Well, like, duh, because they're doing they're so much. doing so much, um, and so like when those folks were trying to like make the best of it and say that they'd enjoy the mountains and the lakes and the scenery of Germany, Cahoon called them on this like insane bullshit and wrote i recommended to those who believed or believed what they were told that they should take a little tour of the camps full of foreigners in jersey like savage that is like so savage yeah that is um that is like that is a put down that's amazing yep yep so in 1944 cahoon was summoned for deportation um they were summoned to present themselves before the uh, commandatur in March of 1944. And so the the Germans were going through their home. So, or oh, no. So they, Cahoon, yeah, they like, went through. Like, yeah, Cahoon, like, went through their home, uh, hid all of the most incriminating possessions. And at the interrogation, Cahoon and Moore, like, <laughs> played up Cahoon's fragile health as much as possible, tried to make them look as sick as they possibly could. So, of course, they're released. No such luck at the second interrogation, though, uh, in July of that year. The Gestapo were surrounded the house, arrested Cahoon and Moore when they were first, um, when they found enough incriminating information. And were, of course, like the Germans were like totally shocked that they were behind all of this misinformation campaign. And according to Cahoon, actually, the Gestapo searched for four years. Like they had been able to avoid getting arrested for four years because they were so good (laughs) at hiding everything. Yeah. And even then, the Germans, like, never would have believed that they had anything to do with it. Yeah. Um, yeah even they said, when the proof was right in front of them, they couldn't, <laughs> couldn't believe, believe it. Couldn't believe their eyes. Couldn't yeah. believe their eyes. So so they were brought to prison, and, and Cahoon and Moore, like, to the very end, right? Even in the police cars that were taking them on the way to St. Helier prison, they managed to swallow 
so here's our, you know, here's our suicide warnings. Um, they managed to, sw- like, even though they were being watched, uh, managed to swallow 20 barbiturate tablets that they, like, always kept with them while distributing tracts in case of capture. They had, like, years before made a pact with one another, They, uh, which Cahoon writes, like, would we let them deport us, degrade us? No. With the risk we were running, we deliberately opposed deportation. In case of arrest, suicide. Like, this is some, like, movie fucking shit. Right? Like, it's it's crazy. And actually, like, it, and it was even more complicated than that. They didn't even, so they usually had these tablets on them when they were distributing flyers, but they weren't arrested while they were distributing flyers, so they didn't have them on them. But they actually convinced the Nazis to take them back to their house because they needed their medication and grabbed them. Oh my god. Like, what oh the fuck? <laughs> I love it. Ugh. I love it. Yeah. So it's, it's just like that their whole life is like playing with other people's perceptions yeah. of them. Like even this is a like, oh, right. They're going to think we're these frail old ladies. We should tell them we need our medication when actually it's our suicide pills. Exactly. Yeah. So the dose wasn't enough to kill them, but it made them like incredibly sick, both of them. And they were both sent to the hospital before being sent into the prison. And they both like awoke from like comas and like in extreme illness like a week later and found that they were separated from one another um mm. and and it like their ill health like kept pushing back their interrogation by like a week a month a whole bunch of different things um mm. more actually like unfortunately att- attempted suicide in prison uh once again believing Cahoon was dead she actually or she actually like tried to slit her wrists but lived and when Cahoon and Cahoon had also had you know like asked for more medicine, attempted, lived. And when when Cahoon learned that Moore was alive, um, they actually, like, resolved to become well and reunite with her. Like, again. (laughs) Again. Their love for one another, like, gave them the resolve to live. Right, right. Because they had hoped to die together Mm -hmm. um, when they were, instead of being deported, but, like, once they realized each other was alive... And isolated from one another, like, they decided to live, even though it meant they were isolated until the end of 1944. Yeah. Um, But, of course, like badasses, they were still able to communicate with each other, even though they were in solitary confinement, um, using a secret postal system by the inmates and sending messages through the ventilation tunnels. I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah, like they were like, each solitary confinement cell was, like, separated by thick walls, but there were these ventilation tunnels that inmates would, like, pass notes and messages to each other back and forth on pieces of string. Someone make this movie. This is the most entertaining movie that I've never seen. Like, what is happening? We're going to make this movie. Somebody make this movie. Somebody queer, make this movie. I will back the shit out of this on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, whatever you want to do. Get the rights. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So... Here comes the war tribunal. So the trial of Cahoon and Moore took five hours, and in it, they learned that the Gestapo had searched forever to try to figure out who was behind the campaign and, like, still didn't believe it. (laughs) They were accused of being, quote, irregular soldiers, and Cahoon actually writes that their use of, like, information as weapon was far more powerful than had they been, like, doing counterinsurgency methods with, like, Mm. actual weapons. They said, quote, we had used spiritual arms instead of firearms, something which, according to the officer, was was more serious because with firearms one could measure the amount of damage done whereas with spiritual arms one could never know how far the damage had spread so like they've been captured they're you know like on the verge of sentencing but they still get this like amazing satisfaction that everything that they did worked and was worth it mm. and had effects 
which, you know, if you're going to be caught by Nazis, like, what better way than to be like, all right, well, guess what? I still got fuck you. Right. It's great. <laughs> like, uh, I love it. Right. Um, so, so in the trial, Cahoon and Moore, like, adamantly refused to deny any of their activities and they were sentenced to death. Um, so like all of their possessions were confiscated and they were asked by German authorities to sign letters appealing their execution order, but they refused, like they refused, like later on there was, it went like all, all over the place back and forth of whether or not they were actually going to get a death sentence, but they were like, nope, sorry, you're not deporting us. We prefer the death sentence. La la. So like <laughs> they refused to like sign appeal orders. It it was it's crazy. Like they just refused to be they just refused to kowtow to Nazis at all. And like the Nazis were super frustrated yep. that they just couldn't get them to submit. Right. Right. I mean, and they, they like, were embarrassed for months. Right. Yeah, because these two these two like seemingly yeah. little old ladies like pulled a fast yeah. one on Nazis. And wouldn't- Right? Oh, God. They're just, like, hashtag goals. So they stayed in prison for months, separated from each other, until around January of 1945, when uh, they began to suspect that their death sentence wasn't going to be carried out. Um, And, in fact, it wasn't. Um, For the fear of public outcry, the Germans rescinded the death sentence. And in February of 45, they were notified that their sentence had been commuted, though there was still a chance they could be deported. But by April, the Nazis were handily losing the war. And German soldiers who were there as political prisoners, some of which Cahoon and Moore made new friends with, were moved out of the prison and sent to disciplinary camps. This is and when all this was happening, yeah. like the 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 SS, so the stormshoots and the the stormtroopers would like tear off their insignias when they were de- when the like soldier German soldiers who were there as political prisoners when they were deported, they would like tear off their insignias and like their buttons, um, and they'd be stripped of all the military affiliations. And some other German soldier friends would, like, rip theirs off before the storm shoots and could and would, like, give them to Cahoon and more as, like, souvenirs of, like, their friendship. So, like, they would have these badges, um, which, like, Cahoon called, like, dirty birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, like, if as, you like, look souvenirs. at the insignias, it's, you know, it's the, you know, bullshit Nazi, the eagle. you know, the yep. eagle. Which, as a Ravenclaw, I'm so offended. Like, right? how dare? No. How dare you taint my... My lovely mascot. My birds. Yeah. What I love about that, you know, like this dirty birds thing, right, is that so like in May of 1945, Jersey is is liberated. And so, you know, they liberate the camps and and there are like two photos of Cahoon during this liberation. Like one is in a crowd scene where like a soldier, you know, where like a, a, a soldier is, you know, being like hoisted up by a bunch of different people. And one of them is like when they had returned to their home and... Cahoon is like standing at the threshold of La Roquese and is holding the dirty bird gifted to them by the German soldiers upside down between their teeth and just like steely gaze at the camera. So as as Shaw says, to the very end, Cahoon and Moore continued to resist the Nazi horror. What? Oh You've just been released from like a prison camp and now you're going to be like, all right, but like, let me let me flip him the bird one more time. <laughs> like... They lit- literally, literally flip the bird. The bird. Literally so flip the bird at Nazis. Oh my god, love so it. I love it. Oh. So after liberation, they returned home, and they refer to their home no longer as La Roquez, but the farm without a name. So playing off of their role as the soldier without a name that they had during their like anti-Nazi resistance movements, um, all of their possessions in the home had been burned. Uh, the house had been pillaged and destroyed. So they worked together with their friends, put everything back in order. They continued to write in the 40s and 50s, writing memoirs of the war. 
and continuing to be vocal about the horrors of the Nazi regime and occupation. Cahoon's health continued to fail, and they struggled with mental uh, mental health coming back. Cahoon was disillusioned with Jersey and felt alienated from the population who had aided the Nazis, um, missed her intellectual cohort in Paris, and disliked the influx of tourists, which makes a lot of sense that, you know, after, like, your home literally became occupied by the enemy and you were sent to a camp and then you have all these people coming in and being like oh look the nazis were here like you'd be like fuck you i hate you." yeah it just it was it was not and was never going to be like the jersey that they called home no Um, no they so they visited paris again in 1953 to see if they could like reestablish life there they like stayed in a hotel in their old neighborhood they met with old friends in new breton and like inquired about renting an apartment but unfortunately cahoon became ill while in paris and so they um they went back to jersey and cahoon's Health took a turn for the worse in autumn of 1954 and was taken to the hospital and unfortunately passed away on December 8th, 1954. They were buried in a corner of the churchyard where they spent much of their time in their idyllic phase before the occupation. And their gravestone has two stars of David and an inscription chosen by Moore that says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, which is like Mm -hmm. very, very emblematic of Cahoon's work. Um, and yep. so Moore um, eventually sold the farm without a name and moved to a nearby area on Jersey and stayed there until she unfortunately committed suicide in 1972. Uh, she was in a lot of ill health and, and burdened with pain from arthritis. And I imagine, you know, after like losing the love of your life several years ago, like, and being I... on an island where you would experience terrible war terrors, like, you know, so I don't, it's yep. unfortunate, but I don't blame her. And she lived a long life. Yeah. So. Yeah, she did. So, so with all that, of that, <laughs> oh my gosh, we—that's all biography, guys. Yeah, that is all biography. So now we're going to move in our section, move into our section. Why? Why do we think they're gay? Why? Why? <laughs> why? Multiple I mean, reasons. Like, I mean, this is one of those where you're just like, how could you possibly? T- t- literally can't think otherwise yeah there are no other options yeah i mean if anything claude cahoon and marcel moore are like known as like lesbian icons uh, but we'll talk a little bit about like why that frustrates me a little bit because there's right. more nuance to their gender um but speaking right. of like nuance to their gender i want to talk about so like they have this amazing relationship with Moore, but there's also this super interesting story about an early attraction and relationship they had to a dude so Cahoon's identification with, like, male homosexual poets early in their life, like, didn't just play out in their writing, but also, like, actually in life. Mm. So, in about 1917, they found themselves attracted to a man named Bob, while still in love with Moore, um, who was a farmer and a fisherman, and his family lived on Jersey, and so, like, you know, when they they vacationed there, they they would see him. And they developed this attraction to him and developed, like, a relationship with him, even though it never became intimate. And what's so fascinating about this is that the narrative, when Cahoon tells the story, it veers from, like, a traditional heterosexual romance. As Shaw says, even as she imagined Bob as a love object, Cahoon did not conceive her role in this relationship in conventional heterosexual terms. Instead of taking on the stereotypical flirtatious characteristics of a woman, she imagined herself in the guise of a homosexual man. Mm. Um, so, like, they imagine themselves as 
as an esteet and teaching Bob the wonders of the classics and the writings of Wilde and Arthur Rimbaud. And, and Cahoon, like, teach, Cahoon teaches Bob about poetry, not the other way around. And so in this, mm-hmm. Shaw says, Cahoon takes on the role of the dominant male in the relationship, therefore imagining them as a homosexual male couple rather than a hetero one. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. And, like, Cahoon even, like, personally describes Bob in this way, like, This boy incarnated my erotic ideal at the time. He resembled decadent Greco-Roman statues, particularly portraits of Antinous. He had in his ferocity, his violence, his easy manner, and the clumsiness of his comportment, in the wildness that inclined him to solitude, something mysterious that irresistibly evoked Rimbaud for me. That's gay. Mm. That's super gay. I just imagine, like, Cahoon just sitting there being like, yes, I am Oscar Wilde. Like, like, this is some self-insert shit. It's great. Right, right. And Uh, how telling it is that the self-insert is in the self-insert of a homosexual male. Yeah. Like... Just like such, such, an such playing of gender and gender roles. And yeah. like, it just really seems like they were not coming at it from a from a, a way that you would expect. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. So this brings us to, we've been mentioned, we mentioned multiple times that we we're going to talk more about their, their literary, photographic and other artistic works. So here's where we're going to do that. We already mentioned Iranian Games, which is a super duper gay references to Oscar Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas. Yeah, um, all throughout. The like, the fun thing about Iranian Games is like the title page is is really significant with it. And so uh, I'm gonna read this from from the book. Um, but so basically, so it's called Uranian Games, and so the the hand drawn title page announces Cahoon's intention to cross into forbidden territory. It includes not only the words les jeux Uraniens, but at the lower right a drawing of a road where a sign looms. It reads in English, "Trespassers will be prosecuted." And so you know, then she goes on to talk about how Cahoon drew the obscure term Uranian, blah blah blah, um, and then says the sign seems to warn that the act of crossing trespassing into the terrain of homosexual love is fraught with danger. Thus we shall see in her writings, Cahoon carefully negotiated that terrain by inserting signposts that would only be legible to those with the right knowledge. So like, Mm. secret gay shit within. (laughs) Yep. Yep. That reminds us of of somebody in our in our friend group who who like found their old journal or their like printout of fix and had like a, a warning on it that just said don't read gay shit inside or something. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. Great. Which did basically what Claude Cahoon was yeah. doing was just like, like hey just a heads up it's some gay shit in here. <laughs> heads up it's gay. Yeah. So that brings us to views and visions which um, they published in 1919 which address the cultural repression of homosexuality by imagining an alternative. And the images and texts of views and visions contrast the everyday images of Cahoon's place and time to her vision, this is quoting Shaw, to her with their vision of how they were in a bygone era or how they might ultimately be in a utopian future, the repressive world of modern France and the fantasized world of freedom. So you have this juxtaposition of like the world as it is and the world as it could be. And the visions featured illustrations by Moore with very androgynous figures, which further indicating the homoerotic nature of the text, the natural landscape images were replaced by, quote, an exotic sexualized encounter between women. Mm-hmm. Um, and notes on the spread of the modern night contrasted with the antique light 
featuring two shadows in one and two white forms in the other. So you have this juxtaposition of images. Modernity is dark and repressive. The sky is somber and heavy. The protagonist dreams about two shadows groping their way down a dark road. The imagined ancient world is the opposite. Cahoon describes it as bright, new, with little shadow. It's a place of eros without arrows. Um, Here love is not oppressed, and the two white forms, symbols of same-sex lovers, are merged in a golden fog. So here Cahoon and Moore are contrasting the dark, um, kind of threatening atmosphere of modern France. Um, Remember, this is 1919, so um, this is right around the end of World War I when you're having, like, this resurgence of, like, homophobic tendencies and kind of like rigid adherence to gender norms so that's what the you know the 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 image with the two dark forms represents like modern france and that's contrasted to a vision of the like light and openness of the classical world in cahoon's imagination um a place where you know the greek ideals or their perception of greek ideals of like free love and and the prevalence of homoeroticism is like celebrated in in the juxtaposition of these two images Mm -hmm. yeah it's really it's really fascinating like it's just these spreads with one page like showing this one world and one page showing the other i wish that i could read it but i don't read french it's just it's lovely to me because so often at least the rhetoric in our society is like things were better when they weren't gay and and here you have you have Cahoon and Moore being like, no, 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 no. Things, things were better when they were. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then you have Idea Mistress, which we briefly mentioned before. Um, but this this piece of writing was primarily like a journey of self-discovery and really like coming to terms with their own um, like same sex feelings. And so there's a really great quote from it that says, And my idea, mistress, for me, also, the love that dare not speak its name, shall form the only soul of this flawless body, my ideal being. And so, reading the poems of Douglas, of Lord Alfred Douglas, right, Cahoon recognizes homosexuality as a guiding principle. It says, I am in her, she is in me, and I will follow her always, never losing sight of her. She will be the indestructible crown of all my acts. That's so good. Which is, I mean, that's basically like my guiding light. Like, I endeavor to be as gay as possible in every moment of every day. Gayness will be the indestructible crown of all my acts. Yep. <laughs> it can get gayer. I can always be gayer than yes. I am right now. It's so relatable. And everything I do will be gay. All of it. It's, it's so it. relatable. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Oh. And that brings us to Heroines of 1925, which I totally want to read now. Yes. BT dubs. Oh my God. Like, please, I really want to read, read this. this. Book. Please read this book by Shaw because it gives like this amazing like breakdown of every single person. Y'all, right. this, so this book is like 300 pages of amazing. Right. It's, it's a series of essays rewriting the tales of women like Eve, Penelope, Helen, Sappho, Mary, Cinderella, Beauty, Salome, Judith, Delilah. So you've got like historical and fictional and, and fairy tale characters like, biblical, and, and like all over the biblical. Place. And these these heroines like speak their minds about the roles that they are expected to play um, and give voice to, you know, quote unquote, inappropriate thoughts and feelings and motivations. And according to Shop. Cahoon transforms the stories so that rather than encouraging young girls to grow into selfless, empathetic women, they instead proffer egoistic models of femininity free from the desire for heterosexual romantic love or traditional female roles. So, like, Cahoon was, like, queering 
querying like female history and fairy tales and stories. Yes. And like includes the story of Sappho being exhausted and plagued by the many attentions of women who pursue her, which like she she's just right. like she's just like I just want to do my art and all of these women want me. I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm so tired because I get all the ladies. Yeah, like, it's and, and shut up, like Sappho. Cahoon even like rewrites like you know like like Sappho's like suicide, saying that it wasn't for a man or for a woman or for anything. It was like I just want to be artistically free, and basically fakes <laughs> fakes like her death and like sends a ca- like sends a mannequin over the over the the cliff instead of herself. Oh my god, that's amazing! <laughs> it's beautiful. Oh, read this book, y'all. It's great. Um, so yeah, so then we move into Bedroom Carnival, which we mentioned was like a big seminal work, um, which was 1926. And so this whole piece kind of talks about how gender and sexuality, among other aspects of our identity, are carnival masks. Like who fits, right? What roles the society places on us are ill-fitting masks that we try to fit awkwardly on our faces. And so uh, a portion of it said that we make our fi- masks out of, quote, cardboard, velvet, flesh, word. The carnal mask and the verbal mask are worn in all seasons. And Shaw Mm. mentions that everyone always wears a mask, that Cahoon's perspective as an intellectual and sexual outsider who's been forced since childhood to negotiate convention is able to perceive this better than most. Mm. Cahoon sees that even those things that appear most natural, such as male and female, masculine and feminine, are themselves masks that we wear. Cahoon can see this because the masks have never fit them properly. Mm. Like, Judith Butler who? What? (laughs) What? Like... Oh, oh god i love it yeah love it uh oh all right, right. we're, near, we're then... near the end here folks Ugh. all right disavowals 1930 so this is a big big work with Cahoon and Moore, and they create this like immense photo and literary montage um which asks readers to rethink social conventions of the 1920s as well as contemporary assumptions about art it's at times difficult to decipher um, there are themes of homosexuality, desire, narcissism, femininity, sexual, like, sexually provocative and suggestive imagery. You've got religiously blasphemous iconography, treatises on morality. Like, this is, like, the surrealism. This is where the, stuff. like, huge surrealist, like, mm-hmm. all of these things intersecting each other. But this is also the piece that most blatantly addresses Cahoon's gender identity as something neither masculine nor feminine, but something in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Lee. Do you want to? Uh, yeah, do you want to yeah. Quote so, this? so, so, like, disavowals was like very autobiographical, while also being very, very surrealist, and tr- you know, a treatise on a whole bunch of different things. Um, but so, some of the quotes in it are one that says, "Live and let grow in me, he, she, or even it, who permitted me, still young, to understand that I must only, that I can only, touch, transform myself." And another one, "Shuffle the cards, masculine, feminine." It depends on the situation. Neuter is the only gender that always suits me. If it existed in our language, right, aka French, uh, no one would be able to see my thoughts vacillations. I'd be a worker bee for good. Which, if you don't know about, like, drone bumblebees, like, they don't really have a sex, which is nope, pretty cool. Um, yep. Multi-layered. Yep. Um, so, yeah, disavowals, I mean, like, there's, like, an entire gigantic chapter about it in this well, book. I could and, not go into detail if I wanted to without having what, an entire different podcast about it. What is what is super fitting right now is you guys can't see us right now, but Lee is currently wearing a oh. shirt <laughs> with a B on it, and yeah. it says, I just love it's that. It's a B, and then it says happy. It's a B. 
Yes, be happy, but also worker bees. Worker bees. I just, I just, that just seems so perfectly fitting. That <laughs> yeah, I actually, I actually have like a bumblebee tattoo planned, like as specifically nice. as like a like a monument to my relationship to fandom and like my gender queerness and a whole bunch of fun stuff. So like, Cahoon is a person after my own heart. <laughs> yes, the yeah. worker bee uh. bees. Bees? That's that. That's, that's for you guys. TGI. Yeah, we love you. That's bees? for you. Yeah. <laughs> also, that means that I will have bee play permanently on my body. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry for those of you who don't get the reference yes. inside joke. Go to TGIFM slash and you'll get the joke. Yes. Um, um, so just in general, you have this amazing quote from Cahoon about the refusable to be desirable, a desirable object for the consumption of men. Um, this was a good one I wanted to end on. <laughs> yep. Quote, all the men who loved me have mistakenly believed that they could cultivate me in a nice little plant for their particular gardens. When I acted freely, they saw me with disgust. At times, a cucumber flower growing in a pile of manure, a silly thistle. At others, a bizarre cactus in whom pride only seemed like vanity, monstrous egoism of the soul. Same, Claude. Same. Yep. Hashtag, hashtag same. So that's that's, that's where that. I wanted to end this. Because, like, just, that's that's my general uh, feelings about men being attracted to me. I know many of my, f- my friends feel this way as well. And it's, <laughs> it just continues to, like, emphasize the level at which Claude Cahoon was, like, operating on a different plane that I love. Right. Um, right. And that, yeah. it's, it's interestingly just, like, another one of those unifying themes that, like, we didn't realize when we put Hirschfeld and Cahoon together. Mm-hmm. how much they resonated with each other but that being a theme of like these are people who were far ahead of their time and unrecognized for the work that they did mm-hmm. like we so often think of um Judith Butler or Kinsey and these are you know people who were saying the same things decades earlier and unrecognized um and it's hard for me not to to start to get angry because I think to myself like, oh right, these are both these are both Jewish, like mm-hmm. queer Jewish, like communists of like, of course they get overlooked. Yeah, like yeah. as shitty as it is, there's a part of me that's like, well, of course they get overlooked, and we start focusing on the other people who who did this later. But like, <sighs> all well, right, and also I'll like stop. in the ways will, in I which, <laughs> well, and the ways in which that like that later work was considered, you know, more palatable. Right. You know, Mm. you had like Kinsey was, you know, a pretty well up dude in the United States who had a wife who then was, you know, afforded the ability to like explore his bisexuality. You know, you had like all of these different factors that give these folks like the privilege to be able to explore those things and bring them out into the mainstream. And you have these two folks who are not in that position. Right, so right. No wonder it gets swept under the rug, which is sad. Um, right, but yeah. And the reason why one of the again, as we say almost every episode, the reason why we have this podcast is because like we have literally been erased from history, mm-hmm. and our contributions and stories need to be recognized not only for ourselves because we deserve to be able to like take pride in and like locate ourselves in history, but also because. The wider world needs to recognize that, you know, we're we're groundbreaking thinkers. We are, you know, amazing, compelling, blasphemous artists <laughs> who, you know, fuck with Nazis. Like, that's who we are. Like yes. it is great. 
Ah, so yeah. So with that, um, so there, you know, there unfortunately isn't a lot of, you know, we keep saying like, ah, I really want a movie about this. And there's really not a lot. Um, there are a couple of films that I dredged up, you know, just by like, I don't know, like looking on Wikipedia. There's one called Playing a Part by Lizzie Tyne, uh, from 2004, Magic Mirror by Sarah Pusill, 2013, and Confessions to the Mirror by Sarah Pusill, 2016. I think these are all documentaries, but I haven't really been able to find out much about them. I think some of them are like going through the circuits of, of, um, of, of like film festivals. Film. Yeah, independent yep. film festivals. So like, if you see one of these pop up, try to go to it if it's in your area um and also if you live in the san francisco bay area uh like i do there are some photos from like that you know those early um photo series from cahoon and more that are on display as a collection at the san francisco museum of modern art so go check out the moma if you are in the area i know i'm gonna go there and i'll probably like tweet some pictures of me hanging out checking it out i get in for free because i work at a museum so yay um but yeah yeah so that brings us to brings us to how gay were they our personal ranking system our personal ranking system of how how gay that we say they are so so lee how how gay is cloud cahoon gosh you know i think um i think i want to give cloud cahoon a goldfish and two canaries out of 10 on the scale very fitting fitting uh for this surrealist episode i just like (laughs) like using subversive surrealist art to completely deconstruct the very concepts of gender and sexuality fighting nazis with misinformation pretending you're like oscar wilde and salome and painting fake male nipples on a shirt that says don't kiss me i'm in training i might be a little bit in love um like it's it's no doubt that Cahoon was like gay as fuck but one of the things that you know that I do want to address is that I'm frustrated that like a lot of the scholarship on them seems to simply focus on them as like a lesbian icon rather than like Mm. wholly encompassing the immense complexity with which they approach their understanding of gender um and while this book that I, I read is amazing this one by Jennifer Shaw I I'm curious to know why she decided to specifically use she and her pronouns throughout because so many of those quotes that we read specifically went into their nuanced understanding of gender so like why not go that extra step why not go that extra step to say hey and i you know i was very surprised to see that the the quote you know the the shuffle the cards masculine feminine blah 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 neuter is the only gender that suits me was curiously omitted from this book Interesting. I'm like I I love this book and I really am I'm happy that I found it, but I'm I'm frustrated that that specifically was omitted and that I found that in another article that I read. So I'm I'm curious as to why mm. that specifically was omitted. And granted, I haven't gone into the appendices where you know they specifically like feature some of of Claude Cahoon's writing, but I didn't see anything specifically picking things out from disavowals. So. I don't know. Um, Hmm. Wikipedia Hmm. uses they, them pronouns, though. So, hey, good job, folks who edit Wikipedia. Yay. Yay. Good for you. Yeah. Um, What about what about you? What about you, Gretchen? I was about to say gender. (laughs) I've been thinking a lot about gender lately. Um, I'm with you. I mean, like. It feels really inappropriate to use like a normal number scale. <laughs> um, like a so you want to yeah. say like a like a melting clock out of ten, right? Yeah, <laughs> I give I give Cloud Cahoon four melting clocks <laughs> and and an eyeball made of fire. 
There you go. <laughs> Out of 10. Yes. You guys can decide for yourselves what that means. <laughs> what those things mean. Because it's surrealism. What does it mean? Oh, God. Who knows? I don't know, but like Who knows what four melting clocks is is pretty intense. I, right? It's right? Beautiful. Yeah. That that you don't mess with four melting clocks. It's, Three, you know, there's some leeway. But it's, but it's four, funny no. because there's like there's one um there's one like surrealist object that they made, like one surrealist sculpture that they made in the 30s that is like an eyeball like as the feature of it and this whole big thing. So like it's appropriate. It's very appropriate. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, surrealists had a thing with eyeballs. Yeah, super there, there's like a thing, eyeballs and <laughs> time, um, which is why, yeah, melting clocks and eyeballs. But yeah, no, I'm totally with you on on the frustration with the way that scholarship in general seems to deal with their gender. Because when I was doing research, like pretty much all the articles I could find labeled them as a lesbian icon, and I do like it's one of those things where on the one hand I understand. Mm-hmm. Like, there are so few, like, of, like, there are so few queer icons that it, that, like, it makes sense to, like, latch on to mm-hmm. someone that way. However, I'm with you that Cloud Cahoon seems to be someone who, who explicitly, like, and not just reading into it, but, like, explicitly grapples with the idea of, like, gender and performance and wrestles with and, like, goes into pretty big detail about their own understanding of their own gender Mm-hmm. Um, as existing outside of the gender binary. Um, Just rejecting it as like a construct entirely, along with right. colonialism, along with imperialism and fascism and all of these isms, like right. add on the constructed identity of gender. Right. So it seems really disingenuous to me as someone who, you know, talks about queer history and, you know, is is wading into a lot of queer scholarship that it seems really disingenuous to me to ignore or downplay that aspect mm-hmm. of their work and self-conception. Like, th- I, that's all I'll say. I have other thoughts on it, but, like, that's all I'll say. It just seems really disingenuous when you have someone who's who's so, so forcefully and explicitly talks about gender as performance, as a mask that someone wears, mm-hmm. and that literally, like, neuter is the term that would best describe me to say, no, well, they're a lesbian. I'm like, but... Mm, are but they are though? they, though? Are, are they, they though? though? <laughs> Especially when they're doing things like, you know, pretending that they're a male homosexual Victorian poet. Right! Really? Really? Is lesbian the most accurate term? Or are we limiting right. ourselves? Right. Right. Anyway. Um, <laughs> we could go anyway. on a diatribe about oh, gosh. this for... A right. long time. Right. <laughs> so, but uh, we won't. That is that is it for today's episode. You can find us online individually. Lee, where can where can our listeners find you? So you can find me online at a paradox in flux over on Twitter, and then I guess just for from now until forever, hanging out in the MoMA because <laughs> I want to stare at these photographs for forever. Stare um, at your. But yeah, if you follow week. me online, I'm usually talking about comics, queer TV, and you know, as it intersects with comics right now, talking about how Nazis suck, because fuck Comicsgate, if any of you know what that means. Oh, That's God. That's my little shout, yep. shout out right now. Yep. Punch every Nazi. Punch yeah. every Nazi. 
Um, that is one of my hashtags on Tumblr. So speaking of which, again, I'm Gretchen. And when I am not talking about awesome queer mos from history, I am writing nerdy media analysis for thefandamentals.com and my personal website, gnls.com. Currently, again, Steven Universe, Winona Earp is going to be coming up soon, which is awesome. I just fell into the black hole that is Warehouse 13, so <laughs> that's on my mind a lot. You can also find me on Tumblr and Twitter as at GNLSWriter. Um, History's Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History's Gay Podcast, Twitter at History's Gay Pod, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History's Gay Podcast at gmail.com. We love emails. Yay! And uh, if you're enjoying the show, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find our show. We get to talk to more and more people about awesome stuff, and we can expand this awesome community. Um, we want to find more ways to engage with you guys. So, you know, hit us up on Twitter, leave reviews, talk to us. We have no shortage of things we want to talk about with wonderful, lovely people. Yes. Yes, we do. So that is it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Stay curious.